Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. So you should know if you're following along with our sermon series that we're just kind of at the beginning of uh, about three months on Jesus Explained in the New Testament epistles. Today, the, we're looking at the book of Acts. It's not quite an epistle. It's not quite a gospel. It's, it's a historic, it's a, it's a history. It's a history. It's a historic document. It's a narrative. Um, and so we're going to look at the book of Acts. But before we do, I want to put the book of Acts in its proper context. Are there any movie fans any, any of you watch movies? Anyone? Okay, some movie fans. I'm not a big movie guy. Most of the movies I watched in my life were probably before I was a parent. Um, I've watched a lot of Caillou uh, in recent years and um, uh, the big, big City Greens, but I haven't watched too many movies that I care to tell you about. But when I was a kid, there were two movies in particular that I loved. The first is Ghostbusters 2. Does anyone remember Ghostbusters 2? I love, well, I love both Ghostbusters, but the first Ghostbusters, I was a tad young for, I did see it, but Ghostbusters 2 was like when I was coming of age and could understand movies, and I loved Ghostbusters. I had the toys. I still have the toy, the Egon Spengler action figure. Um, but Ghostbusters 2, they, remember, this is the one, you guys know, this is the one where they defeat Vigo the Carpathian, and uh, there's the river of pink slime that goes under New York City. It's, that's actually based on true stories. And uh, they beat Vigo the Carpathian, and uh, it's just, I don't know, I love that movie. I, I guess at like eight years old, I thought Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd were really funny. I guess. I don't know if I even understood the jokes at the time, but I love Ghostbusters 2. Uh, the thing about Ghostbusters 2 that was great is you didn't have to see Ghostbusters 1 to enjoy it, but if you saw Ghostbusters 1, it helped. Now, there's another movie that I liked that came out around the same time. It was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. I don't know why I had a thing for movies with slime and ooze in them. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, I know you guys all know this, the, the theme and the storyline, but just humor me. This is the one where Hiroku Saki comes back as Super Shredder. You guys, right? You guys know. Okay, so he comes back and the Ninja Turtles are battling him and Hiroku Saki creates Toka and Razar, which are really based on Bebop and Rocksteady from the cartoon. And then... <laughs> Vanilla Ice comes in, and there's Ninja Rap, and Ninja Turtles 2, amen. So, like Ghostbusters 2, Ninja Turtles 2 was a good movie on its own. You didn't need to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 in order to understand Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, but it did add to the story if you had seen both. Now, you might have noticed that both of the movies that I've referenced here are sequels, they're both two. I could have easily done Karate Kid 2, Mighty Ducks 2, the entire Star Wars series. I've never seen Lord of the Rings, but I could have done Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, the, even the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe that exists now, which is like 25 or so movies. The thing about sequels is they continue a story that's already begun. 
Yo, I, I loved Ghostbusters because it continued the story. I love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 because it continued the story. You could read it on its... Uh, sorry, oh, I'm jumping into my uh, application here. You could watch those movies on their own without seeing the first installment, but if you saw the first installment, it did add another layer of depth to the, the sequel. Well, the book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. They're both written by the same person. Uh, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, but Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And they really should be read as parts one and part two of the same volume. Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. In fact, they start off almost the same way. I'll show you that in a moment. Uh, At the beginning of Acts, Luke, the writer, refers back to his gospel, and it's, it's part of a two-volume set. So you can read the book of Acts on its own. You don't have to read the book of Luke as well uh, to understand Acts, but if you read the two together, it really adds a layer of depth to Acts. Does that make sense? So I want to read uh, from Acts chapter 1. We're starting the very beginning of Acts. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Uh, this will be up on the screen. You can follow along if you would like. Actually, I'm going to read this like verse by verse and interject some explanations. So I will not do the whole 11 verses right away. But Luke 11, uh, 1, 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Let me stop right there. Luke says, in the first account that I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first account is what gospel? Luke. Okay, so he's already already saying, remember, I already wrote a book. And who's he addressing this to? Theophilus. You guys know Theophilus, right? Well, we don't actually know who Theophilus is, but the name Theophilus means friend of God. So it's possible that this is a real person named Theophilus, but it's also possible that Luke is just addressing this to all of the friends of God, to to the church. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 is written for Theophilus. So both Luke and Acts are addressed to this person, Theophilus, the friend of God. And he refers uh, in in Acts 1.1, he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. So this is everything before what we call Jesus's ascension to heaven, which is what we're going to talk about today. Luke is everything before the ascension. Acts is everything after the ascension. Does that make sense? Luke takes us up all the way to the crucifixion and resurrection and then kind of just dedicates three verses to the ascension and then stops. And then Acts picks up where that story left off, which is why we consider it kind of a sequel. All right, let me pick back up in verse three. That Jesus also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs. That's what we've been talking about two of the last three weeks. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So it says in verse 3 that Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days. You know, if you've been listening the last three weeks, you know, we talked about Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus, when he was resurrected, had, had a physical body. He actually says, I think it's in Luke, you know, uh, a, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I have. Jesus came back with a body, a physical body. He ate food, he walked, he talked, uh, but he also, his body was glorified. And so um, when Jesus 
was resurrected, he spent 40 days walking around, having experiences, conversations, meals, doing, continuing to do miracles with the disciples. Just 40 days, just about six weeks, about. What did he do in those 40 days? Well, there's three stories in the Gospels. I'm just going to paraphrase them. I'm not going to read them, but I'm going like, to highlight these three of the most famous stories during those 40 days. The first is Jesus appearing to Thomas. We call Thomas Doubting Thomas. As someone who's kind of like him, I like to call him Realistic Thomas. You know, like, oh, he came back from the dead. I'll believe it when I see it, is basically what he said. I guess that's doubting, but to me that still seems realistic. Uh, You know, like, uh, let's not hate on Thomas too much. I mean, he did obviously miss the point that Jesus said he was coming back, but Thomas said, you know, I'll believe it when I see the hole in the nail scars or the nail hole in his hands and the hole in his side. Eight days after Thomas said that, Jesus appeared and he said, would you like to see? And the story goes in uh, John chapter 20 that Thomas was able to put his finger in the wounds of Jesus. And this is all Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That was his response, to worship Jesus. Another story that we read in Luke chapter 24 is Jesus walking with two men. One of them is named Cleopas. They're walking on a road toward a city called Emmaus. The road, it's about a seven-mile walk. And they're talking, they're walking with Jesus, but they don't realize it's Jesus. But they were having a conversation about Jesus. These two men are walking, and this stranger comes up. The stranger is Jesus. And Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? Jesus is so slick sometimes. What are you guys talking about? They're like, have you not heard about Jesus? Are you the only person that hasn't heard about Jesus? And Jesus is like, <laughs> that's kind of, it's in the Greek, it's subtle. And, and they, they really share their, dis, their disappointment. We thought he was the Christ, but he was killed. And Jesus begins, it says, he goes all the way back to Moses and explains how it was necessary for the Messiah to die and then be raised. And they walk for seven miles, which would take roughly two hours uh, for the average person. And he just goes all the way back to Moses and explains himself, even though they don't know it's him. Well, they, get, they finally get to their destination. They invite Jesus for a meal. Jesus lifts up the bread and blesses it in the meal, and that's when they realize... That's Jesus. And then Jesus vanishes. He disappears. And they look at each other and they say, didn't our hearts burn within us while we were walking on the road? And he was explaining uh, himself. So that's another story. Third story is when Jesus restores or uh, reinstates Peter. Um, You guys know the story of Peter denying Jesus three times. This is when Jesus was arrested the night before his crucifixion. Things were getting real scary, and uh, they started. They said to Peter on three occasions, "Weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of Jesus's disciples? Aren't you from the same place he's from?" And three times Peter said, "Not me." In fact, at one point, Peter is warming himself at a charcoal fire. It's a. It's like a like coals. He's warming himself. They say, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? And he says, I've never even met the guy. And then a rooster crows. And that's what, uh, when Peter realizes he's denied Jesus. So in John chapter 21, this is the first time that Jesus has a little conversation with Peter about that. 
they're having a meal, and this is, to me, this is, this is Jesus being slick again. What, what, where do they cook the meal? A charcoal fire. There's only two places in the entire Bible that mention a charcoal fire. When Peter denies Jesus, and then when Jesus confronts Peter about his denial. It's almost like Jesus said, I'm going to just go ahead and recreate uh, the situation here. You know, smell is one of those things that like brings back memory. So this is charcoal fire just six weeks ago. And Jesus says to Peter, how many times? Three times, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Three times. And every time Peter says, you know I love you, you know I love you. The third time Peter is hurt. His feelings are hurt. Lord, you know I love you. And then this is what Jesus says, follow me which is the first thing Jesus said to Peter when he called him into discipleship, he said, follow me. Then Peter denied Jesus, and Jesus is giving him a second chance. Now that we've dealt with these three denials, I'm inviting you again, follow me. He recreates the scene of the crime and makes sure that Peter's heart now is fully given over to him. So that's the stuff that Jesus did during those 40 days when he was walking around after he was resurrected. But after those 40 days, something takes place. I mentioned in verse 3, it says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Let me pick up in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Gathering the disciples together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, that's John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This is what we call the ascension of Jesus. We have the incarnation of Jesus when he was born. We have the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and now this is the ascension of Jesus. To me, this is a critical aspect of our theology. I've told you this story on many occasions, but I want my kids to understand that where Jesus is right now. I don't want to give them this vague, oh, Jesus is everywhere, right? God is all present. There's no doubt about that, but I want them to understand that the clear teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus ascended to heaven and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. This is really important for us to understand. I'm going to talk for a moment uh, in a few minutes about why this is important for us to understand, but let's get the actual uh, event of Jesus's ascension established. Acts 1, 11, uh, as I mentioned, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him. How did Jesus go from heaven to earth? It says he was taken up in a cloud. Two angels appeared and said he'll return the same way that you see him going up. The ascension of Jesus is not just Jesus going to heaven, it's Jesus returning to heaven. Remember, he started there. 
He's the only one that's ever started in heaven and came to earth. So then he returned to heaven, and one more time he will return to earth and bring heaven with him. Does that make sense? So the return of Jesus to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father until he returns to earth once more is what we call the ascension. It says that Jesus was enveloped by a cloud and ascended to heaven. You know, I've mentioned this when we did the sermon on the Son of Man from Daniel. Only God rides the clouds in the Bible. There's there's not angels that ride clouds. There's not people that ride clouds. Only God rides clouds in the Bible. uh, Both ancient Hebrew Christians and Native American Christians refer to Jesus as the cloud rider. In Colossians 3, 1, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 says the same thing. In fact, it's, it's, in the Bible about, it's in the New Testament about a dozen times in various places that Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of God. So, it is April 25th, 2021. Where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. I want my kids to know that. I want you to know that. I want your kids to know that. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's, to me, that's such an important question. Where is he now? I'll get to why that question is so important in a few moments. But he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And these two angels that are there kind of narrating the situation, they say that Jesus is going to return the same way he ascended. I mean, what do we expect Jesus to be on when he returns? A cloud, right? So I'll get to that in a moment. But that's the ascension of Jesus. It's when he returns to heaven. And I realize that's a wild thing to believe. You're telling me that after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he stuck around for six weeks before essentially floating up to heaven? I know that's hard to believe, but if I believe the Bible and I believe every word of it, that's, it's in there. And if I believe that the world is more than just, uh, you know, material and that there's a spiritual realm, it becomes easier for me to accept this. If I, basically, if I adopt a biblical worldview, I say, well, anything's possible with Jesus. Now, that's the ascension of Jesus. What does Jesus do in his ascension? Now that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, what's he doing? You know, we know what he did in the Gospels. He went around and taught about the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He performed miracles. He did these things. What's he doing now, now that he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Well, there may be more than five things, but there's five things that I want to focus on that Jesus is doing right now in his ascension. The first it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus seats us with him in heavenly places. Uh, we were raised up with him, and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, we're seated with Jesus. This is probably a little corny, but uh, you know, if Jesus is seated to the right hand of the Father, I kind of picture us on his lap that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. This, for me, has been a really significant realization because I don't usually feel like I'm seated with Christ. I feel like there's a gap between us, there's something between us. Uh, You know, I've shared this with you a couple times, but, you know, sometimes you pray and you just feel like there's a ceiling over your prayers, right? You feel like you're trying to pray through a cloud or pray through static or there's something hindering. But this is what the New Testament says. No, you're seated with Christ. You're above the cloud. 
I don't mean a physical cloud, but I mean like the, the spiritual muck that sometimes feels like it's hindering your praying, hindering your ability to hear from God, you're above that. You, know, you, you have, it's like when, you, when you're on a plane and the plane ascends and then it takes off. And I've had this so many times where we'll take off and it's a rainy day, it's wet, it's gloomy, it's gray. But when you get above the clouds, it's like so, it's perfect. The sun over those clouds, right? Spiritually, we live above that gloom, muck, gray, dreary stuff. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. This gives us clarity. This gives us perspective. It allows us to see the way, see things the way that Jesus sees things. What else is Jesus doing in his ascension? Romans 8.34 says that Jesus is interceding for us or Jesus is praying for us. It says in Romans 8, not only is Jesus praying for us, but the Holy Spirit is praying for us. You know, I think it's good when your grandma prays for you and your mom prays for you and your friends pray for you, but you know, did you know Jesus is praying for you? The Holy Spirit is praying for you, and who are they praying to? The Father. There is a Trinitarian prayer meeting happening where Jesus and the Holy Spirit are advocating on your behalf to God the Father. Do you think they've ever heard no? You think God the Father's ever said no to a prayer that came from Jesus or a prayer that came from the Holy Spirit? Right now, Jesus is praying for you. There's one person that never stops praying for you, and it's Jesus. Now, I think that good praying is just us plugging into that Trinitarian prayer meeting and praying what they're praying. You know, and we can know a little bit, like we know what Jesus is praying, because didn't, didn't we read, uh, Pastor John Ayer preached on this a few weeks ago in John 17, we know that Jesus is praying for the church to be united, right? So I'm sure that's one of the things on his prayer list up, up in heaven in that Trinitarian prayer meeting, he wants the church to be in unity, he wants us to be strengthened. Like we know a little bit about what Jesus is probably praying to the Father about. We know that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groans. So a good prayer meeting taps into that prayer meeting and just prays the same things. Does that make sense? So that's why we do this at Truvine. We want to integrate worship into our praying. Because if we can tap into what's going on in heaven and just pray that on earth, we can count on that working. We had an experience with this Friday night where I felt like we connected to our, our position is being seated with Christ in heavenly places and this prayer meeting where Jesus is praying for us. On Friday night, we, we did not come into our prayer meeting with a list, but we came out with one. We came in with one little Bible verse and some worship music. We worshiped and prayed for about an hour and 45 minutes. By the time we were done, we had a list of two or three things that we felt like this is what Jesus wants to do. I think the way that we're supposed to pray isn't that we go in with the list and we come out with his list. Instead of going in with our list, we come out with his list. There's nothing wrong with having lists. I have a prayer list. But I'm just saying that there are times where you want to receive from him because if he's praying to the Father, we might as well pray along the... If he's praying for us to go left and we decide to go right... My left, you're right. If he, okay, let me try this. If we're praying to go up and he's saying go down, who's gonna win that? 
God's always going to answer his prayer. So let's make sure we're praying the same prayers that Jesus is praying for us in his ascension. What else does Jesus do in his ascension? Ephesians 4 says that he gives spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 13, it says that when he, meaning Jesus, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men or to humanity. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So not only is uh, Jesus in his ascension seating us with him, not only is he praying for us, he's also giving spiritual gifts to the church for the purpose of equipping and strengthening or building up. So now we know that Jesus is praying for our unity, right? We also know that Jesus is giving us gifts to strengthen us. This goes with our strength and unity theme for this year. And then what do, the, what do the gifts do according to verse 13? He gives them until we attain the unity of the faith. Unity is a big deal to Jesus. But Jesus gives spiritual gifts. The ascended Jesus is the one who is distributing spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is not a talent or a skill, although those are also given by God. But a spiritual gift is a supernatural empowerment for the purpose of ministry. Okay, And it's not something you can do in your own strength and bear fruit. You have talents, you have skills, those are God-given, but spiritual gift is another category, and it is supernatural. It's a supernatural empowerment. And they're given for the equipping of the church and for the edifying of the church. The fourth thing that the ascended Jesus is going to do is return. Jesus is going to return someday. I believe that this is just as literal as the first time that he came. He mentions this, well, actually, the angels mention this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, it says, This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus is going to return someday. I mentioned this earlier, but Jesus didn't just go to heaven, he returned to heaven. He started in heaven descended to earth. We'll talk about the humility necessary for that next week. Then he ascended to heaven and he's coming back one more time to bring heaven to earth. My son Aiden has really high expectations for this. Um, I was talking to him, I forget what we were talking about, but we were talking about like a revival in church history and how like at this period of time, so many people were following Jesus that you know prisons, were, I think this was the Welsh revival, prisons were empty and churches were full and bars were empty and prayer meetings were full. And I mentioned to him, to him and, he, and I said, but it didn't last very long, it just lasted a few years. And he said something that caught me off guard. He goes, oh, heaven could have came down. And he had, I think he learned this from my wife, this is a children's church lesson. He has this expectation that, at some point, heaven is going to come down. Well, he got that from the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, 20, 21. Revelation 19 talks about the return of Jesus. I'm going to read this. It's verses 11 through 16. 
I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is John's account of the return of Jesus. There is a lot of poetic imagery in this, but... If we read the Gospels and the book of Revelation and merge them together, we understand that Jesus is actually going to return. And my expectation, based on Acts chapter 1, is that when Jesus returns, he's going to return and it is going to be visible. It's not going to be a secret. They saw him go up with their own eyes. We'll see him come down with our own eyes. It'll be visible. It will be personal. It will not, this is not a metaphor This is not uh, an allegory, this is not a fairy tale, but Jesus is going to visibly, bodily return. His return is imminent, which means it could happen at any time. Now we know there are things that need to take place before Jesus' return, but we don't necessarily know all the details about where we are on that timeline. We know that the gospel needs to go to all nations before Jesus returns, but we don't know exactly how close we are to that. We don't know who's got boots on the ground in unreached places. And the return of Jesus is premillennial. Here's what I mean by that. In uh, Revelation chapter 20, there's this period of time, it's a thousand years long, called the millennium. And for those thousand years, Satan is bound. He's tied up. He is not allowed to deceive the nations. And for those thousand years, Jesus runs the earth personally, not through the church necessarily, but he comes to the earth and runs the earth. There are still nations, there are still countries, there are still other leaders, there are still businesses, there are still families on the earth, but Jesus runs the earth for a thousand years. But if I just read Revelation 19 and 20, he has to return before that happens. So after he returns, there's going to be a thousand year reign of Jesus. We call that the millennium. There's different views on that, but if I just read You know, I have this habit of reading the Bible in order. If I just read chapter 19 and then I read chapter 20, that's the order that it takes place. That Jesus is going to return and then these things are going to happen. You know, the other perspective is maybe this isn't really going to happen and it's a metaphor. I kind of reject that idea. The other idea is that maybe Jesus returns after the thousand years and the church is the one. And if that's the case, I feel like we haven't even started a thousand years yet because there's no way that the reign of God is fully enacted on earth right now. Um, It's hardly enacted in the church, let alone on the earth. So the way I read this is Jesus is going to return and establish a 1,000-year reign. He'll reign for 1,000 years. He's going to temporarily let Satan out of that prison. There'll be one final battle. Satan will be cast into a lake of fire for eternity, and that's when there's no hindrance anymore. There's no deception. There's no, you know, spiritual warfare. That's it. So Jesus is going to return to establish that. Final thing. Oh, no. I want to say one more thing about that. The return of Jesus. 
I'm obsessed with this idea. I'm not obsessed with it in the way that I get caught up in you know, conspiracies and I don't have a bunch of charts on my wall or anything like that. But man, it gives me so much hope. I just expect that it's gonna happen at some point. You know, this week, being at a really difficult funeral made me hungry for the return of Jesus. This week, experience, you know, this year, the coronavirus just... Like, Jesus, I know there's going to be a day when this stuff is not part of our reality anymore. And I'm really, really every day getting more and more, like, warmed up to that idea. But when we think about the return of Jesus, this is a common boo-boo. When we think about the return of Jesus, the only signs we look at are the bad ones. You know, we look at, you know... Is there persecution? Are there wars and rumors of wars? We read Matthew chapter 24 and we look at all those like, you know, famines and earthquakes and and we look at those and we try to do a little equation and figure it out. We say, okay, the return of Jesus is coming soon. But what is Jesus coming back for? His bride. And how, what is the state of his bride going to be? Pure and spotless. That should be the sign we're looking for. I know, you know, uh, a year ago, I was being told, be ready to be raptured. Here we all are still, right? I know that it's, and it's easy to get caught up in the negative signs, but Jesus is coming back for a bride that is without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. Okay, do we have that yet? <laughs> We got a whole bunch of spots, blemishes, and wrinkles, right? And the reason for the persecution and the famine and the earthquakes and the troubles is to get rid of the spots, the blemishes, and the wrinkles, right? So a lot of people look to the whore of Babylon, not the bride, to determine Jesus' return. Look at the state of the church, If the church is not pure and spotless and without wrinkle, we still have more to do. Does that make sense? If the gospel hasn't gone to all nations, we still have more to do. So Jesus' return is imminent, could happen at any moment, but there's a part we play in hastening that, and it has to do with the purity of the church, and it has to do with the sharing of the gospel in every nation. This is the last part I want to say. This is the last thing that Jesus does in his ascension. He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 that I read from, as well as uh, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 2, verse 4. He says that he, you will receive power, this is Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now Jesus told them, don't leave Jerusalem, don't leave the town you're in, but wait until you've received the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we have these uh, encounters with God and we're ready to just go run and, and that's how you know it's based on hype, not the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because he said, wait, 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 wait. And they, what did they do for, while they waited? They prayed. Actually, it was a 10-day long prayer meeting. They prayed for 10 days, and then in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, is when the Holy Spirit actually fills the church. And then that's repeated again about six other times in the book of Acts. 
And we're actually commanded in Ephesians to continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. But he tells them to wait. The filling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I use those terms interchangeably, is distinct from your justification. Justification is when God declares you righteous. It happens at the moment that you become a Christian. You're declared righteous and right with God, not guilty, all that good stuff. The filling of the Holy Spirit is distinct from that, but still related to it. The way a wedding and a honeymoon, they're distinct, but they're related, right? They, they generally go together, but they're not the same thing. The baptism of the filling of the Holy Spirit is distinct from justification, but is still part of your salvation. The filling of the Holy Spirit provides empowerment for both holy living and effective service. Those two things are important. It provides empowerment for holy living. You know how you don't like sinning? Yeah, right. We all like sinning. That's why we do it. That's why we do it, because we like it. And, but then afterwards, we feel guilty. We feel bad. And we try to discipline ourselves and beat ourselves into obedience, and we can't. We need outside help. The Holy Spirit is that outside help for holy living, for sanctification, for growing to become more like Jesus. You were never intended to figure that out on your own. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's holy living. Effective service is ministry. You serving other people, ministering to other people in the name of Jesus. You want to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. You do not want to rely on your own talents or skills or charisma. This has to be done in the Holy Spirit if it's going to bear fruit that lasts. The filling of the Holy Spirit is an experience of fullness in your own life that overflows into fulfillment of the mission of Jesus in the world. So fullness and fulfillment. And Jesus said this in John 16, and I've been working up to this the whole morning. He said this in John 16, 7, it's to your advantage, he said this to the disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go, I will send the helper to you. When Jesus was talking to the disciples saying, I'm gonna leave at some point, they did not like that. But he said, if I leave, I'll send the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down. And the Holy Spirit did not come down until Jesus went up. Why is it better? Why did Jesus tell his disciples that it was better for them that he leave and send the helper? Because when Jesus was in a human body, can he be in two places at once? No. He's got all the same limitations and restrictions that you and I had. Even though my kids think I can be in two places at once. He could only be in two places at once. He only made 12 disciples in those three and a half years. He was limited by time and space as a human being the same way you and I are. But is the Holy Spirit limited by time and space? No. I mean, so it's, Jesus says, it was better for me to go so that I could send the helper, that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing stuff all over the earth right now, right this very minute, in churches and neighborhoods and homes and various places. The Holy Spirit is doing all of those things. It's to our advantage that Jesus ascended to heaven and that the Holy Spirit was sent at Pentecost. The, 
the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is a one-time historical event that each one of us need to personally experience. You don't get to have your own Pentecost, but you need to experience the Pentecost of Acts 2. Let me compare it to the crucifixion. Does the crucifixion reoccur every time a person gets saved? No. The crucifixion happened one time, but every follower of Jesus has personally received or appropriated the benefits and the effects of the crucifixion every time they come to Christ. That's the same way with the filling of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, that's like the crucifixion. It's a historical moment in time. But you have to personally receive or experience that. We're not re-crucifying Jesus every time a person gets saved. We're not re-having a Pentecost every time someone gets filled with the Holy Spirit. We are just personally appropriating a one-time event. Does that make sense? Because the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, we know he is available to us at all times. If we will just receive, or I keep using this word appropriate, uh, accept the benefits of the Holy Spirit being descended. So Jesus does these five things in his ascension. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to these things. He seats us with him in heavenly places, giving us clarity and perspective. He prays for us and invites us to pray along. He distributes spiritual gifts for the equipping and edifying of the church. He will return, which is part of our hope, and he baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, which gives us power to live holy lives and power to serve effectively. This morning, I have a couple people that are going to come up and be willing to pray for you. Let me have you come up. Dan McCurdy, Scott Newcomer, Ruby Bermudez, and Sharon Miller. If you guys can come up and just stand up front. If any of those five things strike you as something you need, boy, I need the filling of the Holy Spirit, or boy, I need to have hope in the return of Jesus, or I need to function more effectively in my spiritual gifts, or I need to know that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, any of those five things, these folks are willing to pray for you. Just come up and just share which of those five things or something from the sermon that you're saying, I need that. I know that Jesus is in heaven right now doing these things. I don't have to twist his arm. He's gonna give these things to me. That's what he's doing right now. That's what he's keeping busy with until he returns. So these folks are going to be up here. They're going to pray for you. And then, uh, well, we don't really have a hard dismissal today because you're going to be, some of you will be being prayed for. So let me pray for us. If you would like to slip out, you can slip out. Uh, if you want to come up and be prayed for, you can come up and be prayed for. Jesus, we know that you've given us these things, that these are gifts. This is part of your ministry to us now as you're ascended in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, that you didn't just return to heaven and check out, but you're actually continuing your ministry to us from heaven through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, I pray that as, as people come forward and are prayed for the filling of the Holy Spirit or prayed uh, for hope in his return or that they would receive a spiritual gift or grow in prayer or recognize that they are seated with you in heavenly places, Lord, that, that that would be real, that we would receive that, that we would appropriate that, that we would make that our own. And I ask that, Jesus, in your name, amen. If you'd like to come up, you can come up. You are also welcome to stick around or sneak out if you need to.
Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.